From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. Tensions are running high around the country with constituents asking their political leaders when they can expect harsher lockdown measures to come to an end. On a previous episode of The Tea Room, we've spoken about how vaccines aren't a silver bullet against the Delta strain of COVID and that additional measures such as mask wearing and social distancing will still need to be in place in the future. Today, we welcome back our COVID blogger, Bianca O'Grady. Bianca, welcome back. Thank you so much. And we're going to talk a little bit about what we really need to brace for when we do ease restrictions and start living with the virus, as a lot of people say. This week in New South Wales, there was whispering that once we hit 6 million vaccines, that we would start to see an easing of restrictions for the vaccinated population. We actually passed that milestone earlier this week and no such announcements have been made yet, although I don't want to spoil anything because we could hear something by the end of this week. What is happening overseas and what patterns should we be looking at, Bianca? Well, it's really difficult to answer and I think the the challenge at the moment is that there's obviously a few different heavy-duty models that have been put out there, at least just within the Australian context, because, you, you know, you have to do these models within sort of different populations because obviously what happens in the US is going to be different to what happens here. And, you know, some of those, some of that modelling, for example, the Doherty Institute, which we talked about earlier, you know, suggests that once you start getting to sort of 70%, 80% full vaccination coverage that, things like lockdowns may become less frequent and we can start looking at moving out of this, this current lockdown phase. Um, but then other modelling suggests that if you, uh, you make that move, even when you've got 80% coverage, if you make that move when you've got the kind of case numbers that we currently have and you make that move to sort of completely open up, that you, you'll have uh, an absolute catastrophe on your hands with tens of thousands of cases and thousands of deaths. Now, all of these models are different. They're not modelling the same scenarios, and that's really important to keep in mind when you see kind of headlines about, you know, 25,000 case numbers and deaths compared to, you know, we're going to open up with 6 million jabs. Uh, and I hate the word jabs, by the way. I should never use it, but it's become a habit now because Gladys uses it so often. I really don't know what can change now that we've hit this sort of 6 million vaccine doses. And I think in a way, talking about the number of doses is kind of misleading because we don't know if that's first or second dose. And obviously, it presumably means a certain number of of double doses in there. But who are those double doses in? Who is covered by um, this level of protection? The New South Wales Premier has obviously been hinting that there will be sort of freedoms allowed for fully vaccinated individuals, I, you know, my concern would be that, you know, we still have a large section of the population, more than half of Australians or more than half of New South Wales folk aren't fully vaccinated yet and a significant, and, and when you factor children um, aged under 16 into that, it's it's quite a large proportion of the population that have zero protection. So, you know, when you start to talk about those freedoms, you still have to factor in that even fully vaccinated people can still get infected. Admittedly, the risk is a lot lower and the chance of them actually having severe disease and ending up in hospital or dead is extremely low, but it's not zero. And there is also the 
distinct possibility that people that break through infections in those who are vaccinated may still be just as likely to transmit as um, infections in unvaccinated individuals. We don't actually know that yet. What we do know is that certainly some emerging evidence suggests people who are fully vaccinated but who get infected have the same viral loads as those who are unvaccinated. You know, working on the kind of uh, suggestion and and evidence-based suggestion that viral load does correlate with infectivity, there's a risk that people who are, um, who even, who are vaccinated will still be able to transmit. So, you know, opening up even for vaccinated people too soon will potentially see a rise in infections as the, the virus spreads through vaccinated people and then into the unvaccinated population. You reported earlier in the week that there's only about 6% of people in the UK who don't have antibodies for COVID, given that Australia's you know golden number for vaccination is 80%. If we look to the UK infection, hospitalisation and death rates, given that they have more immunity supposedly than we do. Is that a fairly good idea of where we'll be once we open as a percentage of cases? Look, it is potentially. I mean, the UK, I think it's something like 80. They have hit the 80% fully vaccinated or close to 80% fully vaccinated. And then the sort of the, the difference between fully vaccinated and that 94% that have antibodies is is the people who are either partly vaccinated or those who have pre-existing um, antibodies from infection, which doesn't offer as much protection as vaccination. It's worth it's worth noting. And yes, they are still having massive rates of infections in the UK, just as they are in the US and Israel. And um, that's also associated with uh, significant hospitalizations and significant deaths. Obviously, nothing like what has been seen in the first and second waves, um, or the first, second and third waves, as is the case in the US. Um, so, you know, the vaccines are working in the sense that they are keeping most people out of, or they're keeping the majority of vaccinated people out of hospital and definitely keeping them um, alive. But what's happening is that the, there's so much infection running rampant that the unvaccinated you know, relatively small proportion of unvaccinated people in the population are the really getting absolutely hammered. And so, you know, in the US, they are back in that awful situation where hospitals are running out of intensive care beds um, and people are dying at a rate, an extraordinary rate, and they're all unvaccinated. So it, the vaccinated people are still getting infected. They're not dying, but what's happening is that it's keeping infections circulating in the community and therefore it's hitting the unvaccinated individuals. And what's also really clear with the US is why, you know, when you talk about vaccine coverage, it has to be that level across the population. You can't have an average of, you know, 80% coverage across a state or across a, a nation because within that you're going to have pockets of extremely low coverage and pockets of extremely high coverage. And so what's becoming clear in the US is that certain states, for example, Texas, are where they've, um, you know, their vaccination rates are extremely low and there are other parts of the, of the US that are similar those areas with very low coverage, which somewhat unsurprisingly are often Republican states, are really, really suffering. They're, they're having huge surges in deaths and hospitalizations, intensive care over, being overloaded again, um, you know, shortages of beds, shortages of staff. 
because those because their vaccination rates, even though nationally they might be quite high, in those regional areas and those local areas are low. And again, you know, this is playing out in Australia, uh, in New South Wales, where we have areas like Wilcannia that have had extremely low vaccination rates, despite the fact that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians were supposed to be a high priority population for vaccination. And it just boggles the mind, you know, that this, that somehow we're 18 months into this pandemic or however many months since uh, the vaccine started being rolled out, which was February in Australia, and that we still haven't got anywhere near enough coverage of these vulnerable populations. And I, I think I saw a headline today about aged care homes, that there's only one in five aged care homes in Australia or in New South Wales has actually achieved full vaccination coverage of their residents and and or staff. I, I can't remember exactly what the headline was. But, you know, these represent extreme vulnerabilities, I guess, gaps in our vaccination coverage. Uh, and, you know, this is really a story that's playing out. It's like a fractal that plays out large scale and small scale. You know, globally, we have massive gaps in low to middle income countries where, you know, vaccination rates are so low because they simply can't get hold of vaccines or can't afford them. And so those populations are exquisitely vulnerable to outbreaks. Similarly, at the national level in Australia, some states, some areas have much lower coverage. Then you break it down to states, you break it down to communities, you know, you break it down to towns. Wherever there are gaps, the virus will exploit those gaps in our vaccine coverage until we get very high coverage in all populations and all sectors of society. We're still going to have the risk of this virus running rampant. And I think that that's a good point that you make in terms of if we just revisit what the Doherty Institute has put out, their modelling suggests that, you know, from influenza we get about an average flu year, we get 600 deaths and 200,000 cases which our hospital system can cope with. And the prediction is that if we open up with 70% coverage and some public health measures, but not all, we'd end up having almost 400,000 symptomatic cases and about 1.5 thousand deaths. And that's just in the first six months. Mm. And they say that this can be reduced if we have no lockdowns, but quite optimal public health methods. And this could be reduced to as little as 3,000 infections and 13 deaths. The problem is you look at the situation in New South Wales at the moment and when we've got case daily case loads, you know, around sort of seven, 800 mark, contact tracing is failing to keep up with that. And that's not the fault of the contact tracers. It's just simply they are simply overwhelmed. You know, we hear stories about people who are getting texts seven days after they've been uh, at an exposure site and being told to isolate, you know, get tested and isolate seven days after they were attending it. Um, you know, potentially exposed. And so, you, you know, if we're not keeping up with contact tracing and isolating at this stage, I mean, can you imagine what might happen when we start to get, you know, many thousands of cases a day? It, it's just going to overwhelm the system. And, you know, I think it was um, Mary Louise McClaws, who I spoke to for the story about the Delta variant, she described contact tracing as trying to keep up with a racehorse on foot, you know, when it comes to the Delta strain, because it just moves so fast. I, I, you know, I, there's no right answer here. <laughs> there's a hell of a lot of wrong ones. And I think that's, you know, that's typical with public health. You only know when it goes wrong. You don't know when it goes right. You know, what we are seeing that is positive is the number of deaths so far in this latest outbreak is not tracking along the same trajectory as the number of deaths in the second 
outbreak, at least just based on my own kind of modelling, which is, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, so this is very kind of just chuck it into Excel and see what happens. But, you know, at least perhaps that suggests that not only are vaccines working to keep death rates a little bit lower, but also perhaps we're not seeing the same level of outbreaks in aged care homes and amongst vulnerable populations. Although, Having said that, I mean, obviously the Liverpool hospital outbreak has claimed, I think it's more than 10 lives now, and those were very vulnerable individuals, a lot of them are very old with other comorbidities that meant that they were they were really exposed and they were um, highly susceptible to severe outcomes. Um, and we have had some aged care home outbreaks, but certainly in the second wave, uh, a huge number of cases were in um, aged care homes uh, in Victoria, and this was before vaccines. So obviously the, the kind of mortality rates in that second wave were particularly high. It's a difficult situation to really know where it's going to go. And I think there's it, it's such a political discussion because modelling, you know, modelling is, it's not an exact science. And, you know, the modellers are the first to say that. It's like this is based on a set of assumptions and those assumptions could be wrong. Those assumptions, you know, may have to be updated as things evolve. And, you know, there's incredibly complex models as well. And so all they can do is give us an indication of what certain um, actions may lead to in terms of infection rates and deaths. But it's not it's not a roadmap in itself. And then when you start kind of factoring in all the political pressure that comes on, on lockdowns and the kind of lack of support that's given to, um, you know, to various individuals in, in kind of high-risk areas, it's, yeah, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess, but it's also probably the same mess that every other nation on earth is dealing with. Just before we go, I wanted to ask you a question about some of the deaths that we're seeing in younger people. It comes after a man in the United States actually managed to live tweet his own COVID death, which was a massive shock to a lot of people because he seemed like he was okay. This week we saw another shock death of someone in their 30s from COVID. This woman died at home. Tell us what we know about silent hypoxia from COVID and how that's affecting young people. Yeah, this is a very weird feature of COVID and it's it's not really seen with any other respiratory disease. COVID is not necessarily uh, entirely a respiratory disease anymore, as we've come to appreciate. Um, but essentially what uh, what's being seen is people have extremely low blood oxygen levels, uh, but they're not breathless. And now normally, you know, a pneumonia patient who has uh, low blood oxygen, they're, they're gasping, they're very clearly in respiratory distress. Whereas with uh, these COVID patients, they're not, you know, they're, they're, they are hypoxic, but they're not showing the kind of respiratory distress and symptoms that one would expect for that level of uh, that kind of blood oxygen level. I'm just working on a piece about this at the moment, um, but obviously that poses major challenges for people who are being monitored at home who are apparently, you know, relatively mild symptoms but who can suddenly go downhill. I mean, generally, the thing is, generally these people are already in intensive care. They are already in hospital but not necessarily always and I guess we, we don't know what's been the case with some of these you know, these relatively unexpected deaths in young people. We had the, the chap who died who's in, I think 27 or 28 uh, a few weeks ago and now this woman in her 30s you know it may be a, a pulmonary emboli maybe something that's else that's going on but certainly you know this 
normally this kind of hypoxia, you, you wouldn't expect to see it in younger people, but it's presenting in all ages. It's not something that's unique to older individuals. There's not really a pattern to, to who's at risk. It's just simply that they are not in good shape, but don't feel that way. And it only becomes apparent when, you know, their blood oxygen is measured that um, they're in they're in serious trouble, uh, which may be why then, you know, if it's not uh, treated, they go downhill very, very fast. But it certainly also does pose a challenge for managing COVID people in the community. And maybe that blood oxygen needs to be measured uh, if somebody has is being cared for at home. Um, it needs to be considered because it, it may be that they do have this silent hypoxia that's kind of going unte- undetected. But it's, yeah, it's a really weird one. And it may relate to one of the observations with severe COVID is that it's not like pneumonia where you kind of have the alveoli, you know, sort of the, the, the leaves of the lungs, I guess. You know, pneumonia, those are, are really clogged with fluid. And, and so, you know, you literally just can't get the oxygen through that into the blood. Whereas in COVID, because it's associated with this kind of coagulopathy, that it there's a lot of sort of micro clots micro thrombi that are actually being found on the the blood vessel side of that of that gas exchange so it's you know the oxygen is getting into the lungs but it's then unable to actually get out through the blood vessels into the circulatory system but again it's not very well studied it's a it's a tricky one to study and so you know you can't do lung samples (laughs) it's not something you can sample on a patient very easily so uh, this is this is one that's really um I suspect is going to be sort of studied more post-mortem than anything else, which is not really going to give us a lot of the answers, I think. Bianca, thank you for your time. Thanks, Frankie. The Tea Room is brought to you by the reporters at the Medical Republic. Production assistance, the music and artwork for the show is produced by Victoria Nelson. Catch you next time.